Superman and the Demon. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Mike Peacock. Taking you through a classic superhero team-up, Superman and the Demon from DC Comics Presents number 66, cover dated February 1984. And Mike, team-up books, you like them? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, you know, I to prepare for this graciously offered guest spot, I did actually catch up on your back catalog recently, which... People that may not know, it takes me forever to catch up on back catalogs for podcasts. But it reminded me so much of, outside of giant-sized comics, team-up comics were probably one of my favorite things to collect when I was initially getting into comic book collecting, because they really are essentially the gateway of proper knowledge of their universes. Like, Brave and the Bold, DC Comics Presents, uh, Marvel Team-Up, Marvel 2-in-1. I used to love collecting issues of those whenever I can get them, because, I mean... To give you an example, one of my earliest comics I remember getting was, uh, oh gosh, it was recently covered on your show. It was the Marvel team-up, which featured a two-parter with uh, Frankenstein's monster, or Frankenstein, and Man-Wolf. And I was just like, wait, Frankenstein's monster is in Marvel Universe? I never even knew this until I actually got that issue. Yeah, I knew about the Frankenstein monster in, well, that he was in Marvel, I, I wasn't too sure, but he did show up in these jumbo books that uh, we had the French Canadians had uh, which were like collections of various DC Marvel and probably Charlton comics just thrown together so you get like you had like an issue like a story from uh, House of Mystery followed by Son of Satan followed by The Flash followed by Frankenstein's monster <laughs> but I don't remember him interacting with you know so I probably thought oh uh, this is just like those Tomb of Dracula chapters uh, you know, it's just stories, horror stories, and they, they don't, they're not actually set in any superhero universe. But yeah, it turns out I was wrong. Yeah, so like, even though they never crossed over, you had like this weird, you had the first intercompany crossover team up book, and you just didn't even realize that until that point. It's a lost art today, the, the team up book. Uh, whenever they do team up books, it's always like four or five. I say it's a lost art, but uh, you know, there's, there's some Scooby Doo, uh, team ups, and you know, they're doing things in the, the off canon they're you know not not really part of the superhero universes it's not quite the same uh but usually they're doing oh four or five issues of this one specific team up and so spider-man has to be with somebody popular just to sell the book and we don't get as much of discovery you know it's not like oh who is this sabra who is this uh, you know, whoever uh, you want to name that's more obscure and so that you would be discovering other parts of the Marvel or DC universe. I will say this in terms of like a modern connection. Uh, DC does kind of have it, I guess, relatively blocked off with the Scooby-Doo team-ups that you mentioned. But another company that is doing gangbusters with occasional team-up miniseries, and this is just for me discovering it via Hoopla, the digital library app, it's uh, Archie. Archie is just going nuts with team-ups lately. Is it? Okay, yeah. I gotta check that out. Yeah, uh, actually, one of my recent reads from Hoopla was uh, Archie meeting oh, it's, uh, Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn. You had in the old days, you had Archie and like Predator and <laughs> Archie and Punisher. They always tried to like put the Archie with the super gritty, violent characters for some reason. <laughs> 
I mean, it still kind of happens. Like, oh, there was one, I think, with Archie and Vampirella. I think they actually also recently did another Archie and Predator. And, well, I mean, Archie and Kiss, but then again, you know, Kiss is basically as innocuous as, like, a piece of chewing gum these days. Hey, one day I'll find somebody who wants to do the um, the, the Mars Attacks Kiss crossover. <laughs> That's existing? <laughs> that does exist. There Mars Attacks, a bunch of team-ups. Mars Attacks, the Transformers. Mars Attacks... Kiss, and uh, I'm just looking for a Kiss fan, I guess, <laughs> if, if they still exist. Okay, let's start this off. Uh, in each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist will pick one character to defend. So in this case, Mike, who's your guy? Uh, my defense is for the Man of Steel himself, Superman. Then I will gladly take Etrigan, the Demon. As is customary, we'll preface with a reason or reasons why we like the characters we've chosen. Mike... What's one thing you like about Superman? Well, you know, it's kind of hard for me to narrow down just one element. So I decided to take a period. And this actually coincides with with this issue because it's the Bronze Age of Superman. I'm trying to remember who used to host the show. I think it was maybe Charlie Niemeyer or Michael Bradley. But there was a podcast some time ago illustrating the Bronze Age of Superman. And this era, I think, is vastly overlooked. I mean, if you ask anybody, oh... Bronze Age of Superman, there's really only going to be, like, usually two things that come to mind. It's either Kryptonite Nevermore or whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. And with those, it's still easily, like, about 14 or 15 years between each bookend part of the Bronze Age. It's the beginning and the end. Yeah, I mean, that really is it. But there's still so much in there that is to be discovered. Like, so many wonderful writers contributed to this period. I mean, obviously we had Denny O'Neill to start it, and Alan Moore to end it. But it's also Carrie Bates, Ellie S. Magan, Martin Pascoe, Len Wein, Jerry Conway, and the always... And I know there's some critics of his artwork, but still, Kurt Swan is still one of my reliable Superman artists. Also with occasional inking by Murphy Anderson. And also, the Bronze Age is the period that gave us the artistic mastery in superhero comics of, shall we all sing along, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise Praise be his his name. Thank you. (laughs) And also, it was the time where, after the Silver Age, where they had so many just one-off stories. And I'm going to be honest, reading Silver Age Superman stories, it can be a chore for me sometimes. There are a lot of innovations in there, I realize that. But there's also an insane amount of goofiness that you really do have to be in the right mindset for. But the Bronze Age, they've experimented more with Superman. They gave him more of a serialized approach in storytelling. I mean, you still had some tropes of the Silver Age. Like, yes, every issue had to have Steve Lombard, because everybody loves Steve Lombard, playing a joke on Clark, because it's so funny. But still, you had moments where it's like, okay, Superman has longer arcing stories with his famous villains. And this is also a period, too, where Lux Luthor, Brainiac... Bizarro. So many villains got, like, head-to-toe makeovers. And I'm not just talking about the power suit that Lex Luthor would later adopt and I think it's Action Comics 544. No, they got subtle changes to their characters, subtle changes to their designs. This was a really nice period of invention. And the original creations, gold mines. Like, I've talked before on covering cover date books. Uh, I love Terra Man. I unapologetically love Terra Man. Same with Vartox. Same with Atomic Skull. There's just so much invention and joy in this period that I really do think gets overlooked by a lot of people. I don't disagree. My comic book collection started in the very early 80s uh, as far as American comics go. 
And uh, Superman was, you know, like the character I was immediately drawn to because a lot of my first issues, the first comics I ever bought were DC Comics Presents or Superman or action comics from from that era, even, you know. Uh, so um, it was always amazing. So, oh, Clark Kent, even though I've seen him in the movies or cartoons or, you know, you just know him. Uh, you open the books up and, oh, he works in a TV station now. Things have changed since the beginning of the legend. And the Bronze Age, you know, allowed itself to do that. Yeah, it gave it a lot of expansion. And also, the nice thing about the Bronze Age is that it finally gave us, as we are talking about, a Superman team-up book. And I also do want to throw mention to Russell Bragg, who gave us the wonderful DC Comics Presents show, because it's not just strictly related to Batman. And sometimes... I would dare say Superman makes for a better team-up book experience. I mean, I know there's people who could say, who needs to team up with Superman? He's already vastly powerful. But it's just like, to me, even considering that Brian's Age Batman was a bit more of a friendlier character, quote-unquote, it's still just kind of like, but Superman's just the goodwill ambassador. Like, if you've got on his good side, he's easily, like, the person to have the stamp of approval of. I'm a little uh, surprised that... He didn't get one before. That it took all that time for a second team-up book to show up and Superman finally getting his. I think the the thing with Superman being so powerful or able to do so many other things, I think you had more variety set up in the team-up tradition. It was harder for Batman to... Although Bob Haney always found a way. <laughs> uh, it was harder for Batman to, to team up with characters from other times, from other dimensions. From He still managed to do it. But um, Superman, it's, it's like more natural. He can already time travel. And he can, he can go anywhere on Earth, let's say. So while Batman had to always have a, some sort of reason, Superman, you know, you, you could get rid of that reasoning in, in a page or two. And you're done. I mean, to, yeah, to give you just another example, I mean, heck... Superman teamed up with himself at least three times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you essentially have, yes, you have him teaming up with himself when the Earth-1 version, not Earth-1, but Earth-2, but you also had him teaming up with Clark Kent for two issues in DC Comics Presents. How the heck do you explain that outside of, well, it's Superman? And it just makes much more sense. It's just much more of a free-flowing character to kind of merge with other characters, even, yes, outrageously enough, himself. (laughs) (laughs) How exactly do you want to defend one thing you like about Demon? Uh, Well, I'm going to say the the poem, basically. He doesn't have to be a rhyming demon. That's been on and off over the years. Uh, It wasn't part of the original concept. But the transformation spell that that sends Jason Blood to hell and releases the demon, I love it. Uh, I think like like the issue we're covering today uh, was actually my first exposure to the demon. This is very early in my collection, as far as American comics go. this, uh, I, I didn't get this too far from the you know from my inception date uh, as far as a, being a comics collector. It just sang out to me right away. You know, it's easy to memorize, uh, and there's a it's like a cool twist on the Hulk, really, or Mister Hyde, or whatever the, that that formula. And it's how I know. Like earlier, I think I pronounced it Etrigan because I've heard that pronunciation, but. All my life, I called him Etrigan, not Etrigan, because, <laughs> or else the rhyming doesn't work. Gone, gone, the form of man, rise the demon, Etrigan. I mean, it doesn't work any other way. So, um, uh, the poetry of it, it just said something to me. I mean, there's no other hero that really does this. Now, this is where I lay the whammy on you and listeners. I'm going to say something kind of shocking, so roll with me on this. I'm going to dare say, out of all Jack Kirby's creations for DC Comics, 
I would even say the demon is probably one of the best just crossover platform creations he he came up with for the company flat out. He's better embedded into the DC universe, whereas the fourth world stuff is kind of every time anyone else attempts it. They kind of screw it up. Yeah, that's the thing. It only works for him, but maybe, you know, maybe Mr. Miracle. But it's so tied in together. And then you've got, what, Commandy, Olmac, which are great, but trapped beyond the veil of time in another, in a, you know, in an alternate future. And they don't really belong in the modern day. Whenever they've come to the modern day, it's, you know, it has to be like for a team up. But the demon, he's here. He's also in the past. He's here. He's got his own world, but he's also living in Gotham. You know, so he's accessible. And when you need this uh, character that, that is like straddling the, the supernatural, the demon's great. I mean, the demon's much more accessible as a, a guest star or even a main star as more so than like Swamp Thing, which would be like the other big supernatural character or the Phantom Stranger. You know, either you make him the star or a guest star. I think you've got a lot more to play with. Yeah, and the other thing that helps with him too is that even with the magical and sort of mystical elements, he is admittedly more in design with the superhero aesthetic for DC because, again, they tried it before with fourth world concepts, sometimes to varying degrees of success. I mean, I don't want to criticize uh, Jerry Conway too much, but I still always flash in my mind his concept for the return of the new gods for when Kirby mm -hmm. left and he tried to resurrect them, and he gave Orion that horrendous costume. Yeah, well, I'm not going to blame Jerry Conway for the, the designs, but yeah. But it's just like, New Gods, they are wonderful, I do like them, but they're just not really, in my mind, super heroic concepts. They're just, they operate on some sort of, like, space opera-ish level more than anything else. They're Tales of Asgard. Yes. Kind of stuff. Uh, which isn't the same as Thor. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, no, and the demon's got, you know, he's got the underwear on the outside. He's, he's very much a superhero. He's got a cape and, um, and he's, he, I mean, he's so good that Marvel had to copy him because the gargoyle, <laughs> I'm sorry, but the gargoyle who was in the Defenders is basically, you know, ripping off. <laughs> Let's have our own demon. Um, <laughs> so he's that good. He's that good that the other company needed him. Well, while Superman needs no introduction, let me talk a bit about the demon's publication history. So sit back, relax, Mike. I'll be here a while. <laughs> I'm chilling. I am chilling. <laughs> uh, so the demon Etrigan first appeared in The Demon, number one, August 1972. Famously, or infamously, the Jack Kirby creation he didn't care about. But uh, that sort of, it was sort of imposed on him by the powers that be who wanted a horror character at that time. The king was annoyed that it sold so well. Uh, that DC made him do 16 more issues, or 16 issues in all, uh, and abandon his fourth world story before it was finished. Uh, of course, I don't know if they, they really got what they asked for exactly, but I'm not sure Kirby's heady mix of Arthurian fantasy and science fiction could be called horror, per se, but uh, there you go. And after that, the demon started showing up as a guest star in Detective Comics and Wonder Woman and team-up books like this very issue, the CCP number 66. Uh, a few months later, later, Alan Moore used him in Saga of the Swamp Thing, and a lot of people think that's where he became a rhymer, but uh, no, Moore does explain the rhymers are an order of demons that Etrigan got a promotion somewhere along the way, but it's Len Wein in this issue who introduces the idea that Etrigan rhymes when he speaks. Bravo, Len Wein. It's still probably uh, on the strength of the Swamp Thing appearances that Etrigan got a four-issue miniseries by Matt Wagner in 1987. 
Uh, he attracts a lot of talent, this guy. Yes. Yeah, which was followed by an Alan Grant scripted feature in Action Comics Weekly. Etrigan got his own monthly again in 1990, and that series lasted five years and was pretty definitive. Alan Grant and Val Simics really built up the worlds of Jason Blood and Etrigan, that is to say, Hell. And then the Hitman team of Garth Ennis and John McRae took over from issue 40. And they spice things up with an even blacker brand of comedy. I'd say this was the golden age of demon comics, really. You know, uh, five years, it's a good run. Yeah, uh, not many DC characters can lay claim to that. Sometimes. No, no. And after that, we get a miniseries called Driven Out in 2004. Then the next year, 17 issues of John Byrne's Blood of the Demon that ignored everything but Kirby's run, because Byrne never wanted to do the rhyming thing. So um, he explained it away as a curse cast by Morgane. Uh, and in the New 52, he was part of uh, the medieval Justice League, the Demon Knights, so at least his name is in the title. That was pretty fun work from Paul Cornell, I must say. And then a six-issue miniseries called Demon Hell on Earth uh, appeared in 2018, which I haven't seen. I was not aware of that one even for yeah. 2018. He's still current. You know, people still want to tell demon stories. And also, he had a pretty healthy run of uh, multimedia appearances as well, too. So much credit to that as well. That's right. I, I do recall him being in more than a few episodes of Justice League Unlimited. I'm not as complete with watching through uh, Brave and the Bold, but I he's in there. Would not. Okay, thank goodness he is there. And wasn't he also in uh, Justice League Dark as well? Well, let's get into this issue and tell people what what actually happens in this. It's called The Resurgence of Blackbriar Thorn by writer Len Wein, artist Joe Kubert. Open on a pale moonlit Gotham City, where we have to ask if we danced with the devil there at Riverside Museum. It's a gala unveiling of a new discovery, and in attendance are those WGBS luminaries Clark Kent and Lana Lang. Clark whines and gripes about having to wear a tuxedo, and Lana counters that this is all to celebrate her father's discovery of a 2,000-year-old statue unearthed in Scotland, in perfect condition. Well, it's actually her father, Professor Lewis Lang, who butts into their conversation that reveals this information. Elsewhere in the milling throng, noted Gotham City demonologist Jason Blood, accompanied by his lady friend Glenda Mark, has come to examine an arcane artifact, but he senses a great evil in the air. Impatient for release! Professor Lewis Lang is a gracious host, but he didn't need to apologize if he just unveiled the unearthed statue right at the start of the event instead of making people wait. But with a pull of the drawstring, the Gotham City audience and us readers witnessed the last of the druids. No, it's not Alanon from the Shannara series. We're treated to a series of sweeping group shots and a full-page display of Blackbriar Thorn as Professor Lang explains the legend and lore of the Druids and how they were ultimately struck down by the emerging Christian Roman Empire. The pale moonlight clears from behind a streaking cloud as this moonbeam falls through a skylight in the museum, striking the statue of the Druid. Only... What's unusual is that this statue starts to develop a rather clear and living eye in his head, and the entire form of Blackbriar Thorn is reanimated, announcing his presence to the modern world. 
Of course, the druid could maybe use a cup of coffee because he's already grouchy enough, announcing his godhood to the gathered museum masses. A pair of rent-a-cops draw firearms on the sensual guest, but Blackbriar has a Gandalf-like reaction to the Balrog with them, and he draws upon his nature-based powers to create a series of hurricane winds inside the museum to batter the guards and innocent bystanders. We also see that Clark Kent controls a portion of this chaos to fly into a shadowy corner and providing us readers with a great silhouetted glasses removal and shirt rip, revealing Superman. Across the hall, Professor Lang grabs Jason Blood by the shoulder and invokes his expertise in the occult. Can he stop what's happening? Maybe Jason can't, but Etrigan might. So Glenda distracts Lang by fainting in his arms. Jason Blood runs to another wing of the museum and intones those famous words. Change, change, transmogrify, release the might from fleshy mire, boil the blood in heart of fire. Gone, gone the form of man, rise the demon, Etrigan! And heralded by a laugh that could numb your soul, Jason Blood has been replaced by the unwilling hero known as the demon. But speaking of willing heroes... Lana Lang points out, and gives us a spectacular down view of the front of her dress, that Superman has arrived. Full admission, for Superman's initial encounter with Blackbriar, he does some of the worst action hero dialogue, but he does initially puzzle our resurrected druid until he commands the wooden floor of the museum to transform into ensnaring vines and tangles. Only now does Superman question whether the supposed druid menace actually possesses magical abilities as he's being placed in a hole akin to the crippler crossface before Blackbriar Thorn is distracted by a demonic laughing fit. The demon returns to the main hall and starts burning Blackbriar Thorn's plants with hellfire, freeing Superman. In response, the druid, master of all the elements, creates a storm that threatens to smother Etrigan's flames and lightning that strikes the demon. Blackbriar Thorn crashes through a window into the street, but as the heroes pursue, they find themselves lost in a thick fog that not even Kryptonian eyes can see through. The emergency for now over, Etrigan slips away, a laugh receding in the night. After this pursuit, Superman slips back into the Clark Kent disguise so he can meekly excuse himself from disappearing from a frustrated and concerned Lana Lang. If only I could use a freak magical gale of wind as an excuse to disappear from situations. We get a nifty nod to the fact that this time Lana Lang is dating Clark Kent, while Lois Lane in the Superman titles would be dating the Man of Steel. Uh, double timing. Awkward. Lewis Lang regrets the battering of Clark's tux, and all parties wonder whatever happened to the statue. But Professor Lang mentions an oncoming Jason Blood might have the answer. Professor Lang introduces Jason Blood to Clark and Lana, but when asked to consult on this mystery, he says he'd rather work alone. Coming up behind him, Glenda says he'll make an exception this time, and Jason eventually relents. Later, at Blood's townhouse, Professor Lang is astonished at how Blood's ancestors look just like him in the portraits, but before he can speculate further, Blood announces he's found information on Blackbriar Thorn in his extensive book collection. He recounts how Thorn was the high priest of one of the greatest druidic sects in Britain, how he started sacrificing the innocent in exchange for power, how the Romans destroyed the cult, but Thorn disappeared into the woods and transformed himself into a wooden statue, and how the other druids 
in their final stand, caused a great upheaval that buried Thorn under the earth, from which spot Lang uncovered him. Meanwhile, in Gotham Park, Blackbriar Thorn ponders his next move and is hassled by would-be muggers. Without a second thought, he makes them sink into the ground, never to be heard from again. Thorn thinks back to Superman and decides to steal his body from him, a perfect vessel for his immortal spirit. But why try to find Superman in such a large city when he can simply make the Kryptonian come to him? With a gesture, he makes a twisted forest grow all over the park. In a somewhat similar scene to what Alan Moore would contribute to Swamp Thing, Blackbriar Thorn creates a massive plant dome around Gotham City. All this eludes Superman, who's picking up Batman's slack and patrolling for crime, as he's currently busy getting started with that <laughs> blockbuster title... Batman and the Outsiders. After tying up a pair of robbers at the police department, Superman has a lament of how distant Batman has become ever since he quit the Justice League. Oh, Clark, if only you knew what was coming with Bruce Wayne after the crisis. He never is going to be a 100% team player anymore. Finally, Superman makes note of the plant-based menace and flies down to snap apart some vines to clear some room for him to plunge into the leafy depths. Suddenly, Superman is shocked to see a battered and tangled Professor Lewis Lang trapped by a series of vines. Just as the Man of Steel replicates a Renaissance painting to pull Professor Lang free, a demonic voice wards him away. Etrigan stays his hand and, with demon flame, incinerates Professor Lang. Superman is naturally upset, but the demon explains someone else was wearing Lang's form. Indeed, Blackbriar Thorn curses Etrigan for having exposed this trap. Etrigan warns Superman if he touches Thorn, the druid will steal his body. Thorn slaps Etrigan out of the way. Superman, aghast by Blackbriar's power, wonders just what he could do against a mystic threat that can even overpower the demon. What also doesn't help matters is Blackbriar grows in size. Just as Superman is about to throw a boulder at the enlarging Blackbriar, the very forces of nature go nuts. Lightning bolts! Freaks no storms. Is this Gotham City or just Michigan? But Etrigan makes an offhand mention about how to defeat a foe that's one with the Earth. This lights up a brainstorm in Superman, whose speed drills his way into the very soil. The demon tries to keep the evil druid distracted with mocks and taunts, and he's almost squashed under Thorn's foot for his trouble. With an expression I've experienced after having food disagreements, Blackbriar Thorn questions the rumbling under his feet. Just then, we see that Superman has grasped a chunk of terra firma that Blackbriar is balanced upon and flies it up to the heavens. The weather storm rages with power as the druids outrage, but the fury quickly turns into fear as his body is struck down by a raging bolt of power, leaving Superman grasping a smoking chunk of earth in the skies. Etrigan questions just what occurred, and Superman reveals that since the Earth was the very source of Thorn's power, he lifted his form away from his very base, causing the power the druid had consumed to overwhelm and destroy him. Daylight breaks as Superman and Etrigan take pride in a normal Gotham City, uh, until the next day when probably the Joker threatens to poison the water reserves again. The end. So, <laughs> uh, action, action-packed. Mike, what do you think of this issue generally? 
Generally, I well, I should mention that this is probably one of my first issues that I'd ever read of DC Comics Presents. I think it was actually a randomized gift package that I received from one of my father's friends. So not only was this maybe one of my first experiences with the demon outside of that one Secret Origins of the Superheroes DC Digest that reprinted the first Jack Kirby story, this may have been my first exposure to the demon, but also for DC Comics Presents period. So it was sort of like a double education at that time. Wow. Well, it, like I said earlier, it was also for me, you know, my first introduction to the demon, DC Comics Presents number 59 was my first American comic and uh, my allowance didn't allow me to, to, to get very many comics. And this is what, uh, you know, within six months of finding that original issue. So it's, it really is part of my very early collection. And today I count uh, Joe Kubert as my very favorite comics artist of all time. You know, and I don't know that that necessarily registered at the time. I just remember that the art looked very distinctive compared to, you know, every other comic on the stands. And, you know, that actually bridges quite nicely into the next thought, which is sometimes I kind of knock Joe Kubert for not being what I consider an ideal superhero artist. But revisiting this issue just basically shut me up about that opinion again. It just really is gorgeous. And I really did underestimate the fact that he can really draw a killer Superman and by the way, did you happen to know that you happen to have a Joe Kubert School alumni on this very podcast network? I don't know. I, I don't know if he's ever mentioned it before. No, I don't, I don't think anyone's... Uh, maybe it's Chris Franklin, maybe? Possibly. I, I like to think of maybe Zoom Yukonori, I, I guess. Maybe, yeah. I mean, those are g- good artists, so uh, <laughs> it could be them. <laughs> Sorry, Rob, had to do that. <laughs> but no, I mean, seriously, it's just like... I, with Joe Kubert, I know he does a spectacular Sergeant Rock. Like, there's no questioning his Sergeant Rock. Right. work is you know without any argument he was one of the greatest people to ever put war comics to pen same with a lot of his tarzan work but it's just i have this weird bias even sometimes to this day that still flickers like uh is he a good superhero artist but just reading this issue for the show it's just like no he is just flat out he is yeah well his hawkman and hawkwoman stuff is among my favorites and that's um, I guess that's a little, you know, it's like space opera, um, Flash Gordon-y kind of kind of stuff. So he's always like on the on the edges, not quite the spandex set. And then sometimes he does like a like a random comic story like this one or a lot of you know covers. You just you just realize that it doesn't matter what he's drawing. Actually, would you say he might be almost? Com- I mean, he's never vocally expressed a bias like this, but would you say he's almost? Com- comparable to maybe a John Buscema in a way, because it's like, you mm-hmm. know, John Buscema always used to criticize that, oh, I don't like drawing the superhero stuff, but it's just like, uh, sorry, John, your superhero material is equally as gorgeous as anything you would put to Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, I guess. Although I, you know, while I liked his run on Avengers, for example, with Roger Stern, you know, the style was very s- scratchy, and it, mm. it did seem like anti-superhero in a way that Joe Kubert still... S- feels a lot more epic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. I you know, obviously my my preference is is out there. Both artists are, are excellent. But with Joe Kubert, I think there's more of a I don't know, there's more of a scope. I like I like that he does his own lettering as well. I'm pretty sure about that uh, or it depends on the on the issue, but he does like his own um uh like this one Adam Kubert <laughs> the, the, the writing. So he got his, one of his sons to do the work. <laughs> Uh, on, the, on the lettering. You can sort of tell. It's not quite the same lettering. But yeah, no, I think he's an all-purpose comics artist. And I mean, and the demon, I mean, it's a good choice because the demon and uh, Blackbriar Thorn, who is created for, for this story, aren't really superhero characters. Even if you've seen them in superhero narratives before and after this, 
it's still not not quite superheroes. Uh, you know, big giant druid. <laughs> you know, yes, <laughs> uh, with vines and all that. That that relates it back to his stuff, like his Tarzan stuff and his uh, Tor stuff, uh, as well as like his uh, caveman stories. So, I mean, there's something about that you can do, like the natural world. And uh, Superman is just you know Tarzan with um, colored blue. Yeah, in a, in a way. I mean, it's not, but. Kubert has such a great handle on everything else. He can draw very different faces on people. You know, he can draw different body types. It, it feels kind of like Superman might be in this really strange mystical story. He's the weird part of it, in a way. Yeah, and uh, speaking about, like, just his general artistry, there is another piece where I had to mention, and I've always neglected this until, again, revisiting this issue. Oh my gosh, does he draw some truly, yeah, I will take the shag page here, truly gorgeous women. I mean, just looking at his many depictions of Lana Lang in this Mm. issue, it's just like, oh, well... Clark, I can understand maybe your preference for this female and your, uh, I guess, civilian identity at this point. It's just like, yeah, if Lana Lang looked half as gorgeous as she does, illustrated by Joe Kubert in this universe, it's just like, um, I already know what my preference is. Unfortunately, we don't have necessarily his take on Lois Lane as to offer up a comparison. No, not here, anyways. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, is it... Um, uh, I, I won't out him. Uh, I'll let him talk about it in the comments section but we do have a, a common friend in the podcast sphere who once told me i think that this was sort of a sexual awakening issue <laughs> for him i don't know if lana lang was part of it but you know and certainly there but the issue also has you know the um a serpent page you know with a color hold uh where we're, we're being told the story of the druids and the romans and there is sort of a like a topless woman you know from afar and i was like Really? That's that was part of your. <laughs> it seems so minor. You know, I did not notice because again, yeah, those are, these are the games that we play as comic readers to try and spot these bizarre, I guess, details. I did not notice the serpent piece, but now that you mention it, and now I'm looking at the page, it's like, oh yeah, I guess it's there. Yeah, coming out of Stonehenge and. Uh... <laughs> yes, the Stonehenge sacrificial figure. But outside of that, I tried my darndest to try and find it, but I'm like, uh, no, this Where's Waldo game is not quite working with me, honestly. You know, as, uh, as kids... Uh, you might be looking at a comic book and uh, the artists are going to, I don't know, slip in something that's within, just within the Comics Code Authority, <laughs> just to make it a little sexier than the normal. And uh, sometimes it's like, I can't believe they got away with this. Yeah. Tantamount to getting away with murder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In this case, it's very discreet. I um, I had to go back when I was told this, I had to go back to the issue and like flip through it. And like, I'm still, I was still trying to find what, 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 uh, what exactly was <laughs> the thing and you know the the whole gotham museum which is looks gigantic the insides are you know just giant uh, stairways and all that somehow kubert finds a way to put dinosaurs in the comic i'm about to say it's in <laughs> gotham you expect them to do anything small and, that's true but there is one more note that i did have here which i just kind of found as like a neat tangential piece i wish i had the credits for who was behind that particular episode of superman the animated series but when I saw that segment where Superman's just essentially like mopping up crime in Gotham City, because I don't mean to mean Batman and the Outsiders, but it's just kind of like, oh, they have a continuity shout out to Batman joining the or forming the Outsiders, quitting the Justice League, striking on his own, with Superman covering uh, Gotham City in terms of like general crime fighting. It just reminded me so much of that Superman the Animated Series episode, Nighttime. You know the one where Batman is unfortunately sidelined, and so Superman has to fill in the shoes. 
of Batman, like literally dressing up as Batman in his costume. Mm-hmm. That's just what that segment of the story reminded me of so much. It's just like, oh, this is a nice little detail. I wonder if Superman the Animated Series creators kind of took that element from this story and transplanted it a little bit into their own story. Yeah, it may also have happened in World's Finest or something. I'm sure there's a source for it. <laughs> but uh, you're, you're going to send Superman to Gotham City. you got to ask your question, where's Batman? And of course, those damn outsiders have got him busy somewhere. Not only are they responsible for, for this team-up issue uh, after being responsible for killing Brave and the Bold. <sighs> yeah, thanks a lot, Geoforce. Really, you did me a favor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk a bit about Blackbriar Thorn, this villain, because, uh, well, to me, like uh, as soon as I saw a druid, you know, they're explaining what druids are and all of that, which was not necessary for me at, at that age because I was... You know, I had been reading Asterix since I was probably three or four. The, the the French language kids were reading these, you know, Tintin and Asterix and all of this stuff from France and Belgium. That was our comics. That's what we grew up on. And I think there's completely absent of any superhero aesthetic. So the art in American comics is completely different from what we were getting. It was a lot more cartoony, a lot more caricatured. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tintin's a little bit more minimalist, but still, that's somewhat readily identifiable. It's still kind of like more of an adventure tone, but I do see what you mean, especially with Asterix, or hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. All your European language listeners are probably listening to me right now and just going, you American dolt, just stuff your face with french fries at this point. <laughs> I mean, the pun is, it's an asterisk. But you just go with X instead, Asterix. So yeah, so I knew all about druids, obviously. Although the druids that I knew were good guys. So here comes Blackbriar Thorn. He's uh, meant to be a one-off villain. A lot of team-up books created villains just for their particular uh, needs, right? For that team-up. You know, he's a one-off villain, but he was drawn and designed by Joe Kubert. So, bam, he finds his way into Who's Who. Even though he had one appearance... Uh, he had a cameo, well, he had a cameo in Crisis. Who's who tried to at least chronicle who, like a spotter's guide for people reading, cri- uh, reading Crisis. Uh, he snuck into an issue of Swamp Thing, and then a couple of from, uh, a couple of issues from the 90s Demon series, because he's got, a, obviously he's got a connection right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he really took off in the 2000s, uh, the, the JSA series from that era, and he's sort of been a repeat villain of the Justice Society or Justice Society members until the New 52 pit him against Justice League Dark. So this guy endured, and I'm totally laying it at the feet of Joe Kubert. I dare say between that and probably tying in with the legacy of Len Wein's creations, that probably is why he's still a factor. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Justice Society run, or specifically the JSA run, because it's just kind of those weird blank spots where it's like, I know I read the entire series. Like, in those trades, as they were periodically coming out, I would just read those trades. But it's just like, wait, you mentioned it. It's like, wait, Blackbriar Thorn was in that? I really do need to revisit that series because I just completely blanked that out. I think you are right that a lot of the design aesthetics and even just like his background kind of gave him a little bit of longevity because to kind of tie it in with DC Comics Presents, oh gosh, there was that one Melador villain that was introduced in the Superman Power Girl team up. It was just like, okay, this guy received two issues in the same series. Uh, I think he probably was best deserved to have just a one-off appearance and just left it at that. I mean, do we were really longing for He-Man action figures with Terry Long perms, essentially, at that point? And he got a who's who. He got a who's who page from that. Unfortunately, yes, he did get a who's who page. So maybe it's just like, okay, we've got this character. He came out maybe three, four years ago. Maybe someone will use him. Maybe it's just like 
Joe Kubert's going, uh, who can I draw for? Who's who? How about uh, this guy? Because I remember him fondly from that issue I did, you know? Maybe. Why would you keep him around? Because once this is done, he's buried in the earth, and um, you'd think, well, it's over. This was a very specific supervillain, if, if I can call him that, for this very specific team-up. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned your connection with a druidic lore based on your comic reading. Because as I joked about... It wasn't even until I was a teenager that I discovered the Terry Brooks uh, Shannara series, particularly like the first three books. And uh, the head sorcerer figure, Elanon, is part of this uh, semi-fantasy-ish post-apocalyptic druid order. And I think that was actually the first time I was even really introduced at least cognizantly, of the druids as a concept. I mean, yes, again, I did read this issue, but it's just like, oh, druids, not really familiar with that as sort of like a burgeoning comic book slash history absorber. But still, it's just like, oh, that's a unique concept. Okay. And it just kind of resonated with me throughout the years. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, anything we read really early <laughs> it sort of stays with us, you know. Your first comics are the ones you read over and over again, and once you're once you're an adult and you're buying stacks of ten, twenty comics at a time, which uh, uh, I think I'm being very conservative when relating to my college years. Well, you read them once, and you know you're trying to get through that pile before the next Wednesday comes along. But when you're a kid, each comic is precious. You're reading. You you that, that this is the one I could buy this week. And you're reading it over and over and looking, you know, pouring through the pages and, uh, you know, getting your sexual awakening if uh, <laughs> for some. <laughs> but those stories are become more potent as a result. So I, I can well believe that, you know, this this druid says, oh, OK, this, this was part of history and, and it, it stays with you. Just like in this, the rhyme to turn into the demon stuck with me. You know, it's the sort of thing <laughs> that you wanted to uh, go in front of the class and, uh, you know, recite a poem so I don't want to do uh, the Raven. <laughs> I want to do this, uh, and and you know all the rhyming in this. Like Len Wein really developed that that side of the character, which I find very interesting. At first, it seems like he makes a rhyme that describes his power, that describes the hellfire he's thrown around. So it's like they're always like spells. Like everything he says is sort of a spell, and then it it goes on from that, and any part of conversation becomes a rhyme. So uh, I, I wonder if maybe that's the origin of him rhyming, is that that first spell, and then let's make him cast spells, which rhyme, and I think it's more legible than reverse speak. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, don't don't get me started on. I mean, I've not yet reached that period where she's officially a member, but I'm just like, oh gosh, when Zatanna arrives in the Justice League, I'm dreading moments where I have to potentially quote spells, and it's just like, how do I even begin to pronounce this? Well, I think you should just uh, you just say them in the right order, and then uh, put a reverse on you. You know, use Audacity to to flip the audio. Oh, so basically, treat people to the Judas Priest uh, experience on my show <laughs> then. And then. <laughs> It is a very novel concept, especially now that you point out that Lun Ween was essentially the originator of it, and boy oh boy have creators milked the rhyming demon scheme thanks to this little touch that he just put in one issue, because yeah, I've browsed through the original Jack Kirby issues, and it's just like, as you mentioned in your outline, for a guy that just really hated the concept, it's just, okay, your concept has far outlived what you thought would be potential of it, but yeah, that was never a factor in the original appearances, nor were his occasional crossover appearances in uh, Brave and the Bold, because he would frequent Brave and the Bold a lot, and I do not recall him operating under the rhyming, I guess, rule in those Brave and the Bold appearances. No, and in Action Comics, 
uh, when John Byrne turned it into a team-up book, the demon appears and does not rhyme, because like I said, John Byrne doesn't want to write the rhyme. I think he, he thought it was stupid. Well, uh, let me put it this way. No disrespect to John Byrne's legacy, but I've read his uh, Wonder Woman run where the demon and indeed Morgane does actually factor into a good stretch of it, and I'm like, yeah, um, uh, John, uh, don't don't stress the demon, like, in your creations, like, ever, really, again. <laughs> yeah, but he really, he really likes to draw Jack Kirby's stuff, and uh, so he's basically touched every Kirby... Uh, creation except Commandy. I don't think he's done anything with Commandy over the years. But he's done the Demon, he's done Omac, he's done uh, he's done the the New Gods, all that. So uh, <laughs> I don't think he gets the Demon in the same way that Lenween here gets the Demon. It actually adds to the Demon. And if if Alan Moore runs with this, I mean it's probably a good idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, it's sort of like Len Wein adding... If this was like a song, outside of the rhyming scheme, this is almost like the killer riff that he introduces to the demon. It's the guitar chord that really gets everybody just pumped mm-hmm. for the song that's forthcoming. Yeah, and in this issue, he's also got, like, the maniacal laugh, and, I mean, that makes him... I think with, between that and the color scheme, is kind of reminds me of the Creeper, in a way, who's also, on and off, been in Gotham, so... <laughs> And the Joker lives in Gotham, so you just like you you keep hearing these maniacal laughs all over town, and you don't know what who's who's actually laughing. Uh, and and speaking of other heroes, I just quickly wanted to mention that Kubert actually manages to to do a Hawkman Hawkwoman cameo in this. One of the muggers has it on the back of their jacket. There's like a hawk head. That is clearly, he's clearly a Hawkman fan. Yeah, you definitely did point that out to me, and I made sure to keep careful track of, like, wait, Hawkman, Hawkwoman cameo? What the heck? And then, yeah, sure enough, right at that first panel where the muggers show up, yeah, you clearly see on the one with the massive huggy bear slash, I guess, uh, oh gosh, maybe, oh, I'm trying to think of the name of the lead singer of ACDC, that sort of like paddy cap with the I Love New York button on it. Yeah, clearly on the back of his leather jacket is Hawkwoman's mask mm-hmm. or helmet, essentially, yes. Big fan. <laughs> Who knew that they could market such uh, superhero goods in the DC universe? <laughs> I, I, mean, I suppose Kubert learned to draw museums when he was doing that strip because, you know, the Hawks worked in a museum in Midway City. It all relates back. You know, it, this is just like a jam issue for, for Joe Kubert, really. Just doing all the stuff that... <laughs> He likes to do dinosaurs, druids. Uh, oh, I guess Superman's in there somewhere. And then, <laughs> you know, giant forests. And he's he's just having a great fun. And I think that's why maybe the character survived. He liked doing this issue so much that he probably insisted on doing a Black Briar Thorn entry for Who's Who. Uh, and you don't say no to Joe Kubert. Pretty much. And it is a gorgeous entry, actually. Yeah, and Len Wein was, you know, did work on Who's Who. What didn't he? I think it was like the editor, editor and writer for Who's Who. So uh, yeah, together they sort of com- you know plotted to keep this character alive, and uh, <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> you know, we've seen him after this, even though he, he seems to get vaporized by lightning at the end of this issue. That's still kind of unclear. It looks like it's almost lightning slash maybe overcharging of the power mm. at that point. So you you might you know there, there are ways around this. You know, you can't keep a good druid down. And one of the reasons he probably came up again in JSA is because he's made of wood, which is Green Lantern's weakness. Yeah, good point. Yeah, actually. that's probably it. <laughs> Where can I find a wooden? Enemy, says Jeff Johns. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. 
I'm, I'm, I'm riffling through these uh, old who's who issues and Blackbriar Thorn, yeah. So I'm guessing that's how it happened. Any final thoughts before we move to the debate portion of our show? Oh, no, I, I've got my cards ready. So let, let me wage war with you on debates here. Who fared better on these various topics? So first, how well does this fit each of their stories or atmospheres? Is this a Superman story, uh, or is it, as I intimated earlier, just a demon story? I'm going to admit full disclosure that since he's kind of already based in Gotham, and because of the supernatural menace, it is more of a demon story. I mean, Superman does get his moments to shine, but still, I mean, just the general setting and even the atmosphere of the villain itself, and with its ties even to, like, the medieval sort of magical, it is more of a demon story, I would say, in my eyes. But Superman at least gets to, you know, get the final shot sort of thing. He, yeah. He's yeah. really the, the engine of, you know, stopping this threat more so than the demon. Although the demon just saves his bacon a couple times. Cool moves. What, what's Superman's coolest move? Mine easily is the resolution of the story. I mean, now he's it show off like Superman's cleverness because people usually think, oh, Superman, that just means he's going to punch something to oblivion. But no, he used his ingenuity from just a random statement that the demon made about, oh, hey, how can we get him away from this, you know, earthbound situation. Like, he's one with the earth. Oh, wait, one with the earth. Let me just drill underneath the earth, remove him from it. Superman, if he didn't figure it out, if he isn't as intuitive as he normally could be depicted, that case wouldn't have been solved. So I dare say that was probably Superman's best move, like the actual resolution of the case. Like, him using his ingenuity, his deductive skills, dare I say, along with his power. Well, you're in Gotham. you got to use deductive skills. It's part of the <laughs> part of the nature of the place. Uh, for the demon, uh, well, I guess it's uh, frying Professor Lang. Uh, I think that, that you know, it takes a lot of guts. You're so sure that this isn't uh, Professor Lang. You just fry him in front of Superman, uh, <laughs> inviting maybe uh, the, the Man of Steel's ire. Yeah, you know, the demon comes in, he doesn't explain himself, he just fries a member of the supporting cast in front of our eyes. Yes. It wasn't really him, so that he saw through the disguise and the plot, probably based on Jason Blood's research, I guess. Yeah, side member to cast, but I also will say from my many read-throughs of Bronze Age Superman, it's like, well, Professor Lang, let's just say it was indeed the genuine article. He wasn't putting in too many appearances at this point, so it's like, oh, well... I guess if he died in a random issue of DC Comics Presents, it probably would have been the worst thing in the world, honestly. Well, I think he did reappear after this. I think it's after. Uh, the, the issue, well, we talked about Asterix earlier. There's an issue of Action Comics where Superman and Jimmy Olsen are sent back through time because of a magical shield to Asterix Village, more or less. And it's like an Asterix tribute. Professor Lang's there. I mean, he's the one that uncovered this magical shield. The guy's a menace. Whatever he finds creates a, like major problems. I am a devotee to the Bronze Age of Superman, but that period in particular, I do kind of just let slip from my memory intentionally a lot, in all honesty. The lame duck Superman, as they call it, or, you know, as Crisis was rearing its head and all the stories were sort of one-shots. Yeah, it's just like, uh, yeah, we got these inventory pieces, let's get it 
over and done with. Although I do have a lot of affection for that because of the Asterix uh, connection and it's uh, Keith Giffen art. It's a fun little romp. I probably should break my own rules and, and use it on the show sometime. What is the dumbest or weirdest move that Superman pulls in this? Oh, that's a gimme. Uh, just even from the first appearance of Black Briar Thorn. Okay, Superman, let me refresh your memory, okay? Your list of weaknesses. All right, there's kryptonite. There is that. Okay, sure. There's also magic. This guy is clearly not a technological menace. He's a wooden druid that came to life mysteriously and is flinging people around with wind-based powers. That kind of intones magic, right? I mean, again, my base may be totally off. And you just fly in, just completely blindly. And you just get ensnared by vines that are generated by a wooden floor because he has power over nature and can create plants. From a wooden floor. Uh, uh, yeah, that was just sort of a lapse in judgment on Superman's part of just like, oh, I guess after the fact when I'm being crushed to death by these vines, or at least it's painful enough to him to be recognizing this magical influence that maybe I shouldn't have tackled us because it's magic. That always puzzles me sometimes about occasional Superman encounters with magical influences. It's just like... Why? Why plunge headlong into it? <laughs> uh, and the demon is sort of doing the opposite because he's strong at, the, at first and then kind of drops the ball at the end because he somehow knows all this stuff. He knows it's, you know, he knows it's uh, not Professor Lang. He seems to have like an intuitive uh, knowledge of Black Briarthorn's tricks. But that at the very end, he doesn't figure out. He's the one who says something to that effect and Superman has to reflect on it and think about it and, and come up with a solution, you got to share the action in a team-up book. But the demon doesn't know that disconnecting Black Briar Thorn from the ground will sap his power? It, it would seem like that was like the first line in the book. <laughs> so that he doesn't know that and then he's just like stuck, you know, running around and trying to avoid uh, being stomped on by a giant druid um, is kind of a lame ending for, for the demon here. We both had moments where it's just like our chosen champions had just decided to show some uh, rather uh, interesting gaps in their strategy and judgment. <laughs> and this is a, a team-up tradition. Uh, as is the friendly farewell. Uh, so how does this one rate at the end of the issue? I mean, heck, how much better can you... I mean, all this last panel needed where Superman and the demon are just looking out at a sunrise in Gotham City, looking quite proud of themselves, congratulating themselves on this adventure. All it needed was a high-five at that point to just kind of amplify the positivity of the friendly farewell. I mean, it really was handled quite adeptly at the end of this issue. Yeah, and they do make a point in the issue that, like, Superman doesn't know the demon before this. So this is their first meeting, hasn't even read the files on the guy, you know, he's, he's not aware of the demon at first. So uh, at the end, they're very chummy, and, uh, you know, the demon's singing, uh, such a perfect day, uh, you know. As... <laughs> yeah, cue to Lude Reed right now. <laughs> yeah, I guess they're friends, they're buddies from this point on. Or at least until Crisis wipes their friendship away, as Crisis did with a lot of friendships. <laughs> <laughs> friendships and relationships died much more than the characters did in, in Crisis. <laughs> oh, poor Superman and Batman. <laughs> we'll take a break for a couple of promos, and then uh, we'll be back with our bonus team-ups. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics. A demon child sent to the mortal plane to escape the Dukes of Hell, Etra L is raised by Wiccans to be the protector of the Earth 
As Kent Blood, he works for Occult Planet magazine, but when the forces of darkness cast a shadow on our reality, he becomes the Super Demon, exposing evil with his Hellfire vision. On the stands this month, Super Demon number 666, in which two of Blood's greatest enemies, Morgane Edge and Lex the Witch Boy, join forces in an unholy pact. Don't miss it. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team. Operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to... Uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. We're back. Our final feature, the bonus team-up, in which each of us proposes, in this case, a perfect demon team-up. So, Mike, what have you got for us? Now... I'm admitting I'm being a little bit greedy with this one because there were just two decisions that were just flooding my mind and I couldn't pick between one or the other. So I'm taking two. One is a legitimate Marvel DC crossover, so we're playing fair on one of them, which is I'd love to see Damon Hellstrom, a.k.a. the Son of Satan, actually teaming up with Jason Blood slash Etrigan because you'd know that'd lead to some many interesting encounters because, again, Etrigan is sort of like a form of, I guess a representative of hell. And so Jason Blood probably could get really irritated by his rhyming scheme, so he's just like, what was my father thinking of employing this guy as part of his legions at this point in time? But the other one that came to mind was Spawn and Etrigan, in terms of like an indie crossover, because on the one hand, you have Etrigan, who is unabashedly a demon, like he luxuriates in his demonic powers. And then you team him up with Spawn, who is a Hellspawn, and as Al Simmons classically is portrayed, he's very reluctant about his Hellspawn powers. Like, he cannot get over the fact that he is in debt to a damnable force on the underworld, but with the Malbogia. So it's just like, I could like to see that mechanic of like somebody that does not want to be associated with this aspect of the underworld, along with a demon, a literal demon from hell, interacting with him saying, what, this power's awesome, I love it, I love rhyming all the time. And plus also I would say Spawn is owed a quality crossover, because <laughs> I, I'm sure at some point you will talk about the one crossover that Spawn had with a DC character that, uh, yeah. Well, there are two of them, actually. There are two of yeah, them, yes. yeah. They, they, each company had to have their own version of it. Maybe someday. I haven't yet, you know, people aren't uh, 
battering down the door to, to, to do any of the image stuff crossover. Uh, but I'm open to it as I'm open to all this stuff. And I can easily see in that case where uh, we could have, like, you know, the violator sort of overreaches himself and the demon comes in to teach him a lesson. Yeah. Yeah, but then meet Spawn in, in the process. Yeah, that would work. For me, I went I, I, I went completely insane, and I <laughs> made it the demon and Hamlet. Of course, it's a poetry thing. It'd be in Elseworlds, and uh, it'd all be written in iambic pentameter, some of it rhyming, some of it blank verse, uh, and it has Etrigan uh, crash Elsinore instead of Camelot, you know, at first uh, to come in to, to drag the ghost back to hell, but then Hamlet binds them with his knowledge of the mystic arts, and it becomes a tug of war between the doubting prince and the aggressive demon as to just when revenge will be taken and on whom. So uh, more or less have the demon as Hamlet's alter ego slash devil on his shoulder kind of thing. So uh, maybe it's Hamlet saying, gone, gone, the form of man, you know? (laughs) I hate to shoehorn a creator in on this, but it's just like, with that crossover, it's just like, if it was done in this current comic continuity, I'd be like, the only person I could probably see pulling this off is Neil Gaiman. Like, I would definitely, you know, put Neil Gaiman in a hammerlock and say, you will make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these um, proposals that we've had at the end of every uh, episode, and we're on the 20th right now. So that means that there, there were like at least 40, you know, you, you cheated and gave us two. So there are more than 40 proposals for team-ups I can't believe anyone uh, is not like listening to this and going, oh, I got to make it happen. So this is my <laughs> proof that no one at Marvel or DC are listening to these shows. <laughs> or else it's a gold mine. It's a gold mine in ideas. Yeah, license to print money. That's the catchphrase. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for teaming up with me, Mike Peacock. Remind people where they can find you in this here podcastosphere. Well, the best place to find me is www classicjla.podbean.com the home for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast. It's also occasionally the home of Count Dante's Black Dragon Society adcast, but primarily it's the home for my taking a look at technically, mostly the pre-crisis era of the Justice League of America and I do cheat because yes the Detroit League did outlast the crisis. They technically ended at the end of Legends. But still, it is a look at that classic Justice League of America run before it became Justice League or Justice League International or Justice League America. Shag would know best as to the terminology of that. He picks up where you leave off. Yes. And I will say, if you want to find me on social media, just look up Mike Peacock on Facebook and on Twitter. You can find me at ClassicJLA. And a reminder that we do enjoy reading your comments and that the best place for that is FireAndWaterPodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page or uh, on Twitter, we're FWPodcast. See you next time for another amazing superhero team-up, because, after all, justice is a team effort. Gone! Gone! The form of man! Rise the demon Etrigan!